Welcome to the Dover Podcast. This is Chief Master Sergeant Emily Mosich, and today we're going to explore the road to chief. Today I've got two of our newest chief selects with us, Senior Master Sergeant Jose Ramon and Senior Master Sergeant Jeremy Frappier. Hello, uh, Senior Master Sergeant Jeremy Frappier, uh, otherwise known as Frapp, which was started by my sixth grade music teacher, but it seemed to stick for some reason. Um, assigned to the 9th Aerial Squadron as a C-5 Loadmaster, uh, currently the superintendent for the Wing Staff Agency. And, and as uh, Chief Masich said, um, I'm Senior Master Sergeant Jose Ramon, I'm currently assigned to the Talon uh, Squadron, which is the 736 AMXS, supporting the C-17s out here at Dover. Uh, dual military by trade, so shout out to my wife, uh, Hortensia, in the mid group. So uh, to get started, uh, Jose, you came in relative, uh, and you, pretty early in your career, you got married, and your first assignment was kind of underwhelming. So mm -hmm. you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so... Um, not unlike some of our other airmen that we have across the base, you know, I had a recruiter that promised me some things and I was excited about it. And they told me if I was a crew chief, I could be, become what's called a flying crew chief, get to fly on airplanes, go on different missions. And I was very excited about that. And lo and behold, my first assignment is uh, Little Rock Air Force Base at the 62nd Airlift Squadron, one of only two C-130 squadrons in the entire Air Force that don't have flying crew chiefs. So um, I was working hard, trying to do what I could. I was a DCC on an aircraft and things like that, but I was just dissatisfied because I always wanted to get out on the road and see what the mission was like. Um, and so uh, first tip, be careful what you wish for. There was, a, there was a board and a chief asked me a question about deployments. And you know I looked at him and said, well, I don't have anything to say because I've never been deployed. And he said, do you want to be deployed? And I said, absolutely. And so two weeks later I was deployed. Um, and I remember um, finding myself there and I started feeling more gratification about the mission and what we were doing. Um, but in particular, I remember we had just gotten an attack. We was in um, Balad Air Base, Iraq, uh, Mortaritaville is what they called it. And um, as we're there, um, I went to go work at the Air Force Theater Hospital, like doing some volunteer work. And um, we, it was a helo that came in, had some of our fallen brothers and sisters on it. We went and grabbed, grabbed them from the, uh, from the aircraft and we started walking under what was known as a hero's highway. So it was a American flag that was just draped over this huge tent. And I remember walking through there and just thinking like, this is what I want to do. It was awesome. You get to see everybody working together, the medics, the logisticians, maintenance, everybody's working together for the common mission of helping each other. So I thought it was awesome and just kept pressing from there. Awesome. Now, uh, so you came in, wasn't exactly a right fit right away. It took some time going in and asking for that deployment. Now, Frapp, you, you came in and you started out in maintenance doing some work there, and you found your own way to take control of your career. What did you do as an airman? Well, I uh, decided to join the Air Force as a guaranteed job as an aerospace ground equipment mechanic. Um, my lowest two scores in my ASVAB were mechanical and electrical, so I figured, well, I suck at this. So let me find a way to make myself better. So I took on this job, uh, which it's hydraulics, electronics, uh, APUs, anything you think of, right? So uh, my first station was Elmendorf Air, Air Force Base, Alaska. Great assignment, met my wife there. But I found out that up there, I worked for the C-130 unit, and in a cold and dark environment, I found out I was just primarily working on light alls and heaters constantly. And um, the culture up there was very, very ingrained in the past, and um, it just wasn't really fulfilling for me. 
and we got tasked with a lot of just extra duties on 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 base so there wasn't really a lot of uh just joy in the job right and it came to a point in my life and i was at about three years doing that and i said you know i i can do a lot more with my life um either i need to cross train to something else that's going to give me some joy and some self-worth or i just i'm probably going to separate so I put in my package to, uh, to cross train, and lo and behold, uh, a few months later, I was uh, picked up to become a uh, C5 loadmaster at Travis Air Force Base. So I kind of set my own destiny there. Uh, what I should have done, which I didn't do, is I didn't tell anybody I was doing this. So when my orders came down, I got a little feedback from my uh, supervision. <laughs> and uh, at that time, I really didn't care. I was like, see you later. But now looking back after being in for <clears throat> 24 years. Um, I, I see why it's important to broadcast, hey, here's my intentions, here I want to, what, what I'm going to do. So for both of you, it sounds like your first couple of years in the Air Force weren't necessarily what you expected. And you both had an opportunity that came up for you to take some control and make a decision and end up somewhere where you weren't. You ended up deployed and you went and cross-trained to become a loadmaster. But before we go forward, I think we should take a step back a little bit. Jose, when you were deployed, uh, you were dealing with some pretty big stuff on that deployment home station besides what you had going on while you were out in the field. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, it, it was a little, little strange because, you know, on one front, uh, professionally, everything was going real well. You know, I, had, I finally got to get out of home station and see what that was like. I got to see what, you know, the mission was downrange and things like that. But, you know, prior to deployment, um, and even before that, in tech school, I had met someone, we ended up in the same squadron, we ended up getting married, um, a baby a baby came of, of that situation. Um, and so we're, we're trying to figure out life there, right? So first duty station, new married couple, moving out of the dorms, it was all this, all this stuff, all this, I guess, frustration type of things. And I remember my first supervisor, um, Staff Sergeant Thomas Crazy Imorgera, comes up to me. And, and before this, he had told me, if I ever look at you with both of my eyes, that you're, you're seriously in trouble. <laughs> and so I walk in, and, and, he, and it was so weird, man. Like, one eye, like, literally does this thing, and he looks at me, and he's like, hey, we got to talk. And I'm like, oh, no, what happened? And, and he comes to me, and he's like, look, man, I don't know what to tell you, and I don't know how to say this, but I don't think the baby's yours. And so we go to this like very uncomfortable conversation where he was very, very direct with me and just telling me what he thought and why and this, that, and the other. And so we fast forward a little bit and we find, I end up getting a divorce. Um, there's a blood test and the baby's not mine. And so like, there's this whole thing that's just blah. It's just not a good part of my life, I would say. Um, and I remember um, him still being around me, taking care of me. I remember the chief of my squadron, Chief Richard Carney. I don't know why I can remember his name, but I remember um, he called me when we, we, this all came about, and he was like, how are you doing? We're going to take care of you. Um, and I remember going into work that night because I was a midshifter, and there was a, a Staff Sergeant Don Kim. I'm just crazy. I can't remember. I remember these names. But Don Kim was there, and we were, it was in a fuel cell or a refurb hangar, and he was there with me the entire night just checking on me, seeing how things were. You know, as time went on, it was less of that and it wasn't checking on checking in on me as much. But I just remember that, you know, the Air Force was bigger than mission. It was it was bigger than that. You know, they actually cared about me as a person and what was going on in my life, despite the fact that we weren't blood related or anything. So it was just it was it was a difficult part of my life, but um fast forward to two thousand sixteen I become a first sergeant and you know, I've, I've shared this story many times behind closed doors when people come and talk to me. Um, this is actually the first time publicly, but um, 
you know, I didn't, I didn't forget what they did for me and I wanted to do that for other people moving forward. It's amazing the, uh, the way that the, the people that you encounter 20 years, it may have just been a week or a month that you spent with them and 20 years later you remember their name and it's just ingrained into your mind because of the impact that they had on you. And it sounds like that really set you up on the path that you had for the rest of your career, becoming a first sergeant and wanting to give back what they gave to you. Uh, Frapp, it took you a little bit while longer to find your calling and your direction where you wanted to go with your career. Uh, you want to tell us about how you found your direction? Well, I didn't really uh, realize I wanted to pursue, um, really pursue the senior master sergeant and possibly chief till uh, probably master sergeant for like three years. Um, I left Travis Air Force Base and I went down to the uh, detachment in San Antonio. Or How long was it that you were at Travis? Because you were at Travis for quite some time. You Once you cross-trained to the C5, <laughs> you got pretty comfortable for a while. Alka Travis. Yeah, well, uh, 99 to 11s for 12 years, but um, as a C5 loadmaster, we really have four options, right? Here at Dover, Travis, San Antonio, or up at Scott. And unless you want to cross-fold another aircraft, which I had. I was still younger in my career, and I wanted to uh, really uh, perfect that. And I did a CRW stint in the middle also. So, But, yeah, so 12 years later, I head down to San Antonio, and um, I get to the detachment, which is uh, it's a detachment from headquarters, A3T, and we're in charge of uh, C5 simulators and courseware, and I was uh, the C5 loadmaster instructor courseware guy. I'm like, all the changes came through me. And it was known amongst the C5 community that if you went to the detachment, these are where lieutenant colonels and master sergeants went to, the, went to die. Like you're out the pasture, um, just do what you need to do and then retire. And I didn't really know that going into it, but when I got there, it was very evident like, hey, you're here, ride your time out, retire at 20 and press on your life. And after being there for a while, it, it kind of was set into me like, okay, I guess this is my destiny, right? And um, then one day after my one buddy's retirement, I uh, came back to the uh, office and uh, in the email box of my UDM was a deployment orders for me. I said, I'm like one of one, Who's, why did they deploy me? Where's, where's my reclama? But um, I guess they were able to live without me. So I did deploy and I was able to deploy to uh, Djibouti with uh, JSOC as uh, I suppose goes a load planner. Um, so it was more of an aeroport job, but they wanted a loadmaster out there to kind of oversee it. So I get out there, and I've never dealt with JSOC as a C5 guy. Uh, you know, we're strat airlift, uh, landing big airports, or not 130s that are dealing with this stuff. Um, so we get out there, and it's a whole new world for me. And I just, um, it's a, it was a completely different culture. Uh, they're just really driven. Uh, they're all about the mission. Because I think more because they can see, like, tangible results from the mission, like, the next day. As of like C5s, you know, we deliver the cargo and it goes to the base and then from there it goes on a 130 someplace else and it eventually makes it the warfighter and they use it to accomplish whatever mission they do. But with JSOC was like, hey, we're doing this and then the next day mm -hmm. or the next two days it's on CNN. It's mm -hmm. like, this actually happened. So it was the realization of what you're doing, the impact you have was, uh, is very moving to me. Um, and honestly, uh, doing six months out there and some great leadership that really didn't have to invest that much time in me. I'm just an augmentee to JSOC. 
Uh, but they actually really invested time in me and uh, motivated me and supported me. And they kind of helped me craft where I should be going. So I leave the deployment, um, successful, come back home to the detachment in San Antonio, great to see the family. But here I am, back in the same environment where he's like, okay, well, you're gonna have your time. And I got back and I was like, you know, this doesn't have to be one of those jobs where it's not promotable, which let me just say is BS. All through our careers, we've heard like, hey, this job is not promotable. You're gonna go here, you're gonna do your time and that's gonna be your life. And that's BS. Any job in the Air Force is promotable and I'm a realization of that. It's what you do in that job, how you, how you impact change, and what you do outside of that job to make it better. So yep. from that, I was actually able to, uh, I guess, pursue who I wanted to be. Um, and I had to ignore the, just the thought process of what it was to be down there and just push forward and, um, I was able to actually make senior master sergeant out of there. And from that point, I've just, it's been a, it's been a crazy rocket ride, right? Cause I come here at Dover and they throw you me in the superintendent position at the ninth, um, my first real superintendent position. So I have 130 or, you know, almost 200 people, the pacing unit. And then from there I'm over to OSS and then I'm at the wing staff agency. So it's, it's just been crazy fast. It's been great. I've learned a lot along the way, but it all started with a pivotal point where I got those orders to deploy and just the emergence in that that culture of JSOC and there's units like that all over the Air Force. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying they were the only people that do this, but I, for me, that's what I needed to kickstart. So essentially you did exactly what we've heard a million times, which is the phrase bloom where you're planted. Mm -hmm. uh, Jose, when you were planning on going to be a first sergeant, I believe you got a similar message yes. as to what FRAP got with where you were planning on going and what potential impact that would have on your career. What were some of your mentors telling you when you wanted to be a first sergeant? So, um, so before, like during the process of becoming a first sergeant was right before DSD um, had hit, right? So they were still doing like the volunteer process and things of that nature. And um, I remember um, one of my mentors, uh, Chief Weatherspoon, um, she had become a first sergeant. She'd come into our maintenance unit and I remember seeing how she interacted with our folks. Um, she would go to the roll calls on the off shifts, which it was very uncommon. Um, and she would interact with people in a very different way. And I was like, man, that's pretty cool. Um, and I remember um, she like handed me the phone one day and said, hey, you're the shirt for the rest of the week. And I'm like, I've never even been to the symposium. I'm like, what do you say? He's like, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. So I was like, okay. And so the, the process comes up and now it's DSD time and my name comes up and the chief of my squadron at the time um, brings me into his office and he's and he's like look I'm not saying you wouldn't do a good job but it's gonna slow you down um, he goes if you go become a first sergeant you know your career will probably not progress as quickly um, and by that he was talking about you know promotion uh, just because it's very competitive in the first sergeant world and I remember you know thinking about that and and really thinking about a previous mentor who had told me that he he thought that that was a good path for me and, and I had to decide, you know, was it more important for me to make rank quick or was it more important for me to give back and go be a first sergeant and see what that was like? And so I remember talking to my wife and she said, no, I think this would be a good idea. I talked to my, my mentor, the shirt, and she said, no, you're gonna be a first sergeant because I know you're gonna do a good job. And so I just took that, that leap of faith. Um, and so, yes, 
Um, I guess I could say it may have slowed me down a cycle, but I made senior as a first sergeant. And so to me, the, the greatest reward was being able to not only help my squadron, but then find other first sergeants that I could reach out and help because now I was a senior shirt kind of thing. Um, so I think you got to figure out what it is that you want, like your ultimate goal, and, and just go with that. And not really worry about the promotion, but bloom where you're planted like everybody says, because whether you're a on the flight line just turning a wrench or in the med group, you know, making sure patients are good to go. If you do your job and you lead your airmen and you do it the right way, it doesn't matter what your duty title is. You you will you will get the opportunity and the blessing to lead more airmen and maybe a higher grade. You just spoke a lot about the leadership it takes to make it to to chief and getting out leading and taking care of airmen. Can you talk a little bit about how you see followership and how followership evolves as you go up the chain of command. Yeah, so I remember um, I love watching YouTube videos. Um, I, was, I was actually listening to a podcast the other day, and Chief Wright was saying, you know, for a long time he said leaders are readers, and now he says leaders are learners, um, just kind of acknowledging that you can learn whether you're reading or not, you know. So I like listening to podcasts. We're talking about the Joe Rogan podcast or Jocko Willick or Tribal Mentors. There's lots of them. And um, – so I remember just watching this video, and it was a video about the crazy dancer that started a movement. I think it was called How to Start a Movement, something like that. And so you see this guy, he's doing like these crazy dance moves and stuff, and there's a person who's narrating this whole thing. And they say that lone nut is the guy that's out there doing all these crazy dance moves. And by himself, that's all he is. Nobody's doing anything with him. But the first follower is actually the most important person in any movement because they're the ones who give that lone nut some buy-in and shows everybody else that it's okay to follow. And so you see this one person start doing the crazy dance moves and by the end of it, everybody is over there doing these crazy dance moves, just having a good time. And I remember thinking like, that's what the Air Force is like too, you know? Too many times we keep telling people, you gotta lead, you gotta lead, you gotta lead, but you gotta be a follower too. And if you can't be a good follower, you cannot be a good leader. Um, You have to be able to support the decisions that are made um, unless they're illegal, immoral, and ethical, and then you have that obligation to say something about it. But you have to be able to follow, and you have to be able to show others how to follow, and that's what makes you a leader. So that's my take anyway. You got any thoughts to add on that one, Prep? So followership for me throughout my career has obviously drastically changed, like I imagine it has for a lot of people. Uh, when you first come in, you just blindly follow because you really don't know anything else. Uh, what are you supposed to do? Let's go do it, right? And... As you stay in a little bit longer, uh, come a little jaded. Uh, it's like, hey, we got to do this thing. That's Master Sergeant, whoever comes out. And then the questions are kind of like, oh, well, that doesn't make sense. Why are we going to do that? And there's a complaining, right? But you're still going to do it because at the end of the day, you're a senior member, staff sergeant, or whatever. And uh, if you don't do it, there's consequences. But along the way, I complain. I can complain the whole time, right? So, uh, and which really doesn't make any differences, but it makes yourself and your people you're playing with feel better, right? So I guess there's some positive to that. <laughs> Not for the unit, but for the person. Um, and then you move on up to the upper ranks and you start um, understanding a little bit, but still you'll see like the upper leadership speak with, they have their, their meetings with the commander, then they come out and, hey, we're gonna do this thing. Mm-hmm. And as a math sergeant, taking it from the senior to the chief, you have to take this message and then deliver it to everyone else that you just were, that you know are gonna complain about anyways, and try to sell it to them, right? Um, 
now into where I am now, I understand, I've taken from what I've learned throughout my career that followership isn't just blindly leading. It's not doing it and complaining about it. It's um, asking the right questions when you're told something. Does this make sense? Is there a better way to do it? And walking through that process, right? And then at the end of the day, the commander still has authority, right? So there's been times where I have, I have disagreed, but he said, well, this is what we're doing. We're going forward. And like, I got it. I got it. But I need to know the why behind it because I need yep. to be able to have buy-in from mm-hmm. my squadron and just telling them we're doing it because we're doing it because I said does not work. You're, you're going to see it happen, but it's not going to be, it's not going to have the effect that you want. Mm-hmm. So I need to know the process behind it and why we're doing this and not be seen as just a yes man coming out of the office. <laughs> Cause I remember when I was the yep. math sergeant or the tech sergeant, I saw this chief and he's like, and he basically looked like a little puppet going for the Colonel. And I was like, I don't, I, I need to know why I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't authentic. Um, and it, it was just hard to sell people on what we were supposed to be doing. So, if I get the why, I can craft the message and I and I can actually deliver the message to the people like, hey, here's why we're doing this. We need to move forward with this. I mean, it's, it's ultimately the commander's decision and I can be authentic about it. I think yep. that's that's one of the, the hardest things to, or one of the most important things to keep as you become uh, higher in leadership is to remain authentic. Um, it's, Anybody can spot someone being fake a mile away, mm-hmm. and it's it's very apparent. And I've always really tried to remain authentic and just just truthful with what I'm saying. If something's if something's crap, I'm gonna call it crap. Um, I'll do it in the right setting, and I'll figure it out. And when I go out to the unit, I'm I'm going to still be honest without all the intricate details. But I'm going to we're going to move the mission forward because that's that's the intent and the vision mm-hmm. of the commander. You, so you just said something that it reminded me of, of something um, in the sense that, you know, followership doesn't necessarily mean you're following somebody that outranks you. Um, sometimes you're following your subordinates. And I, I think in particular of now Master Sergeant Philip Bean, but you know, I was an expediter at, at Travis and we were trying to generate C5s. And uh, I was having a rough night because of an incident that happened with a different NCO. And then when I went to go talk to my other team and I was talking to them, they noticed that I wasn't the same. And they thought I was upset at them. And I remember uh, he was a staff sergeant at the time, but he hopped in the truck and he was like, hey, can I ride around with you? And I was like, yeah, what's going on? And he just like, are you okay? And he, I was like, yeah, why? He goes, you're not okay. He goes, you're not acting the same way. Like, what's going on? And so I confided in him, right? And he goes, okay. He goes, but you know, those guys think you're upset at them. And I was like, are you serious? And he goes, yeah. And so I went over there and I talked to him and I said, hey, I'm not. Uh, that was bad on me. It was not on you. I, I need to be a better leader, right? And it was one of that humble pie moments of, I was not being a good leader, and but I had to follow my NCO because he was showing me the right way. And I think the other p- thing that you said that I think also resonates is um, please don't assume just because one of your leaders comes out and is saying the same message and trying to get the vision of, of your commander or officer or whoever is it that is that is running your, your unit, um, that they haven't had heartfelt discussions behind closed doors to talk about the goods, the bads, the ins and the outs of whatever the decision is. Um, I think those always happen. And it can be very uncomfortable the first time you're in that situation, like 
trying to say, but sir, have you thought about this? But ma'am, have you thought about this? But all of the good relationships I've had with my superior officers usually started out when they realized that I was willing to give them some feedback that maybe they weren't considering. So be willing to do that. So, so far we've talked kind of how both of you have had these times in your career where things have not gone well. You've made decisions and you've taken control over what's going to happen with you. We've also we've also covered how important both being an authentic leader and being a being a thoughtful and uh, faithful follower what that has brought to the path of becoming a chief. But there's a lot more to making this stripe than just that. And are there is there one more thing that you would like to pass along to our listeners that you want them to keep in mind as they are potentially themselves setting off on their road to wear the chief stripes? Sure. Um, I remember, I can still remember Senior Airman Resnick in my BMT class, look at 60 of us and say to us, there's gonna be people in this group right here that are chief master sergeants. And at that point, you just, it just seems unattainable. It just seems so far away, right? And we're really far away from pump people because she washed back like, like 30 people. She, she was something else. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> um, but I can tell you, uh, perception is that you have to have this perfect career and just hit every block just right and check all these check marks if you ever want to attain the highest rank in the enlisted corps. And I'm here once again to say that's BS. You, it's, there are stages along your career where you may have to pause to do what's right for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other areas around your career where you might have stumbling blocks. I had a huge stumbling block as a staff sergeant, and it, it really set me back for like 10 years. So if you can guess what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but I, it, it, was, it was a huge hit to me and my family. And at that point, I was just like, well, I'm, I'm probably not going to attain that highest rank ever now because I have this in my career, right? And there's other little things along the way, right? There, there are, life happens in our careers. And it's, it's not the fact that you get hit with this and then you have to instantly recover. It's, it's a growing process. And as my dad told me, I'm like, hey, well, I guess you're growing some character. I'm like, damn right I am. I mean, <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a tough time. Um, but from that, I learned a lot. And um, that's where a lot of my empathy grew is because I, I went through that situation and I could understand what those individuals feel firsthand uh, when something of that magnitude happens to you. So um, I just took that and I remember that and that's who I tried to be. And, and from that, I progressed through my career and I tried to do the best I could. Um, when there's opportunities, I took them. Uh, I tried to make my education successful and actually help me out, uh, not just Air Force wise, but something actually pertained to me. I'm not just clicking boxes with my degrees. Um, and I'm just in, in the relationships that I made within the Air Force. Um, I always try to maintain those and just really try to grow those relationships because honestly, um, networking, I know you've heard it a hundred times, a thousand times, <laughs> networking is key, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and there's that point in your career when it is not what you know, but who you know. And that's just a God's honest truth. 
that's, that's just the way it is sometimes. Um, so throughout your stage of your career, walk on those people, keep them, keep them close, and um, and then hopefully you can get where you want to be in your career. It, it, it helped me out while there was timing and doing the right thing at the right time, but um, I, it, it was a long process and it was not a storybook career by any means. I will definitely echo that. The Air Force is small. I, uh, it shocks me every time I walk into a unit and I realize that I am about to be working with, working for, or leading someone that I knew when I was an airman and I'm in a new MAGCOM and a new airframe. Uh, it is a, it's, it's interesting how small this Air Force is and it just gets smaller the, the longer that you're in it. So, so yeah, Jose, what do you want to leave us with? So I think the thing that I want to leave with is is this the idea or the concept of making sure that you take a knee. Uh, Chief Wright, I think he says, well, putting your mask on first. Um, there's other people say that, you know, it's harmony or balance or whatever. Um, but I think that one of the, the biggest things that you have to realize is that the Air Force career, right, if you want to go 20 or 30 or whatever it is, um, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, and you have to give yourself the breaks that you need to make your service you know, still worth it for you, right? Because um, the military can be a grind sometimes, and deployments and long hours and that kind of thing, and so you have to be able to recharge. And whether it's the 30 days of leave that you get um, or the extended weekends that sometimes we're afforded the opportunity to, like, go out and see things, you know, spend time with your family, spend time with your, your extended family, whether it's in the Air Force or just the family that you make at all the different bases, and get out there and find out what you're passionate about that's outside of the uniform because it will end for all of us and in some way, shape, or form, right? Whether you want it to end the way uh, you want with the retirement or maybe, you know, a medical or something. And so you have to have that other stuff, that other, uh, other things that give you um, some meaning and some balance. Um, so what I would say is um, it is not a sign of weakness to take a knee. Um, if you need to take leave, take leave. Be there for your family. Be there for your kids. There's a lot of, a lot of events that I wish I could have been there for, but I wasn't. And so, as I look back now, maybe a little more more mature with less hair on the top of my head, like I realize, okay, I gotta make those days count, and I gotta make those the time that I have with my family or my friends count. So, um, learn from the old guy, I guess, and start doing it now, so that once you get to a point, you know. When you go to, to retire, that front row, there's still people there, and they're not somewhere else because you've neglected them. One of the things you just reminded me of is we've got a group of airmen over in the comm squadron right now, and I walked in, I was picking up the equipment for the chief release party, and the airman I was signing the equipment out for was excited because he was getting ready to go on leave, and there were four or five of them maybe even six that were all taking leave at the same time and they were all heading overseas they were all taking overseas leave together cool. and i just looked at him and i was like man i wish i had been that smart <laughs> as an airman because i that would have been awesome yeah so yeah it is an incredible opportunity to get out there and just we have so much that we can do in this career and uh it's it's about a lot more than the work so I want to thank you guys for coming out and chatting with me today here at the uh, Dover Podcast Lab. And if you guys, both of you, made some big career decisions, but one of the ones that you, that frap that you talked about was, uh, was cross-training. So if we've got anyone listening who's interested in more information on cross-training, your 
best resource is going to be your career assistance advisor. And if you happen to be listening here at Dover, that's Master Sergeant Dina Maldonado, and her number is 677-6363. And thank you for spending your spending a few minutes and listening to the Dover podcast. This is Chief Master Sergeant Emily Mosich, and I've got... <laughs> Okay, when we first recorded this, I forgot my name. <laughs> so anyway, this is Chief Master Sergeant Emily Mosich, and this is the Dover Podcast. Thank you.